I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're breaking down comps. Before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for each episode over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources. But uh, without further ado, Christina, let's talk comps. It's good timing because I've been watching a million. (laughs) (laughs) That's honestly where I think, because I think I pitched this idea and it's because you kept like sending me messages about your comp hunt. And I was like fascinated by yeah. it. And I now also have to come up with uh, literary comps as I prepare to send my my manuscript out. And um, it's famously extremely annoying. So what are comps if you don't know what a comp is? Well, according to Google, who I used for this definition, um, comps are projects <laughs> similar to your project that prove you have a viable idea to investors. Now, investors is not always the target audience for comps. Uh, sometimes it's a screenplay mm-hmm. competition. Sometimes it's a film festival. Sometimes it's an agent. But like, let, let's just consider it like stakeholders. Or an audience. Yeah, audience. Um, yeah, because a lot of times you end up using comps for marketing. Um, it's helpful mm-hmm. to have like keywords f- of like media that people already love to associate with your new work so that it, it's almost like, well, if you like this, then you'll love this. Like basically it's proof that something like your project exists out there already that will make it more appealing to people who don't want to take a risk. Does that feel like a, a fair definition? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so these similarities, the projects similar to your project could mean everything from budget size, which I know, Christina, you have probably a lot of thoughts on uh, audience and demographics, Mm -hmm. uh, theme, format, and even characters and story. Ideally, you'll have at least one or two comps for each of those like categories of similarities. It's not necessarily that you will use all of them. You're not going to like roll out with eight different comps necessarily for every pitch deck that you design, but it's useful to have them as like touchstones when you're talking to people because sometimes like people will need additional convincing and it's helpful to have you know like a phase two of convincing to give them so picking picking comps where where do you tend to start when you when you're like all right new project need to pick some comps yeah so I I guess I start with who am I picking them for because that factors into how I go about it. For instance, my earlier projects were all crowdfunded. So when I was picking comps to try and market to people, it was very much like mainstream stuff, trying to find things that are tonal matches that'll give them a vibe. So it's like, if you're a fan of this, then you want this from me. Um, Because most most of the time people you're reaching out to people in your network that aren't other filmmakers or don't work in the industry. If you're crowdfunding, you're reaching out to like friends and family and then audience beyond that. And so they're probably not going to be like as aware of what screened at Sundance last year, you know? Sure. So um, there's that that side of things. But then what, with my new film, I'm trying to find comps for financing. So for the production company that I'm working with, for them to go to financiers with. And so that is a very different thing where I'm all about indies and trying to find films that didn't necessarily reach mainstream status, but did well within the industry, within their version of success, the industry's version of success. Um, And budget is very much a factor and 
just all these like nuanced things that audiences don't care about and don't know about. So it's two very different approaches. Totally. So uh, when you were making those earlier projects, do you remember um, some of the comps you picked that seemed to work? Yeah. So, I mean, Summit was my first feature and my first time really marketing anything and, and trying to build an audience for anything and trying to get funding for it. And we, you know, we ran a Kickstarter in 2012. Um I ran for my first Kickstarter in 2011, so I got confused. But uh, that was for short. 2012, and we raised $12,000, and for me, that was a ton of money. Um, And it was about appealing to horror fans. And so I just went with, like, classic movies that I was trying to sort of, like, do my own version of in a way. And so I talked about it a lot as The Thing meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre but with like a psychological twist to it. Uh, and I think that that was very successful, but it also set like insane expectations because those are two of the best horror movies of all time, arguably. And um, and also my film ended up, I kind of like, it was a misdirect. I wanted my audience to think it was more of a slasher than it actually was. And so... During crowdfunding, I leaned into that a lot, but then during festival runs and eventual distribution, I didn't quite use Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I didn't want to set the wrong expectations, but people that came from crowdfunding and then eventually watched it, I think were a little bit like, wait, this isn't a slasher. Like, it is kind of, but it's also not really. Um, And so, so I ended up trying to then lean more into like, I don't know, just... I didn't use comps quite as much for festivals and distribution, and it was more just about a new spin on the friend, like road trip, friends going on a road trip slasher movie with more of a psychological bend to it. Um, it was a learning experience. I think I kind of failed, <laughs> but it was my first time. I was going to say, do you, do you regret uh, leaning so hard into Texas Chainsaw for crowdfunding? No, no, I don't, because it, it worked. And I never said... I think all of everything that I was saying outside of that was like, it's going to subvert your expectations. And so I didn't lie, you know, but people don't necessarily read or listen to the nuance or the full explanation. They look for those short, buzzy, this meets that, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think that anyone was like, I hate, I hate that you did that. They were just kind of like, it wasn't what what I was expecting. Right. It was, some people were like, it wasn't my cup of tea because I thought it was going to be this very specific thing and it wasn't. But some people were like, oh, it wasn't what I was expecting, but I appreciate what it was. Um, and yeah, and also like, you know, it was a $12,000 <laughs> feature that I made <laughs> when feature, I was... yeah. Yeah, first feature that I made, you know, in the snow in, in 11 days and with, you know, 10 crew members and and I was... 22 23 so so yeah um but budget wasn't at all a factor in that because like I I couldn't I wouldn't even know how to find a comp in that regard I'm sure they existed but like Twitter wasn't what it was a few years later so I didn't have the ability to like say hey can you you know and I think people are a lot more transparent about budgets on the indie level now because of how much we know about how how much transparency helps other filmmakers. But then it was like you hide your budget because if you wanted any shot at distribution, 
you didn't want distributors to know how much you spent, which we talked about, I think, in, in our distribution episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's, Maybe. and I we might have even talked about it in our Raising Money episode, because that is still, I mean, that's still a fear of a lot of indie people. Like, I'll talk to people after a crowdfunding workshop that I'll run, and they'll be like, what if I need crowdfunding, but don't want to tell people what my budget is? Like, I don't want to be transparent with my audience, because I can't be transparent with distributors, because I've been burned before. And I'm like, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. have a good answer for you about that. I mean, I was like, you don't have to lie, but maybe you can just, like, keep it to yourself. Like, you know, just really focus on like what you need this money for and not worry about Mm -hmm. and say like we have other financing for the rest. Like keep it vague and just focus on like the explicitly like using the funds that you're raising in crowdfunding for that stuff. And like, you know, maybe that'll be a happy medium. Um, But like, yeah, it's definitely tough because the industry likes to pretend like all of this is something that you can just easily assign like, oh, that's a two million dollar movie. And it's like, that's that's not nuanced enough. That movie could be a $2 mm-hmm. million dollar movie. It could also be a $50 million movie. And it could be a $20,000 movie. Like, it depends on who's yeah. making it. Right. <laughs> and so, but which, then, yeah, you know, they want to use that to, you know, short people on distribution deals. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, but that wasn't even a factor at all for me. Like, I didn't know anything about distribution, but I knew that right. at the very least, I could put it online, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um and I hoped Did you festivals. try to distribute Summit? I got a distribution offer from our festival run. I'm glad I didn't sign the deal. I was like, I agonized over it for, I feel like a month. And then I was going to sign and then just had this gut feeling that I shouldn't. Um, and, and largely because they weren't offering me an MG. They weren't offering me money up front. It was going to be a profit share. And at that point, I'd already put it on Vimeo On Demand and Amazon because I had like we had just finished our festival run and I had just done it and they I think that's why they reached out to me because they were like oh wow it's like getting traction on Amazon this was when you could like you know before we've talked all about right this is when Amazon (laughs) allowed indie stuff coming through this is when Amazon actually paid Um, artists this is (laughs) right so they reached out and they were actually going to let me keep like those to myself and so it was going to be probably a sweet deal but I was hesitating because they want to do dvds they were like horror still does well in like big box stores on a dvd um and they also were interested in like other itunes and whatever all of that um but they had all of these really offensive exploitation films in their in their library of stuff they distributed and I was like I don't want my name associated with that and it was such a weird thing that I did use twitter a lot for that to be like how do you navigate this when it's not, those aren't your movies, but like you signing with them is almost like an endorsement of them. But, but it goes back to everything where it's like, oh, you know, if Disney does something fucked up, am I never going to work with Disney? Like, you know, and it, it's the, sure. your options in this industry are so limited because it's just about gatekeepers choosing you, right? And so it's like you have to kind mm-hmm. of figure out where your line is and it may move depending on the impact, like, of a variety of things. So anyway, I ultimately decided not to do it because it didn't feel like the payoff would be worth it from talking to a couple of people who had worked with them. But then a few years later, I started hearing real horror stories about them in terms of like A, working mm-hmm. with them and B, uh, just how they they have really shady bookkeeping so that you really never see a dime 
And so in theory, like you might get your film out there wider, but you don't even get, you don't know how much it's being watched. You don't even know if those DVDs are being bought. So like there would be a, you know, a fun, like go into Walmart and see your movie on DVD, but like, is anyone buying it? You don't know. And you're not seeing any dollars from it. And then they ended up going bankrupt. So like the deals that they signed with some people that were really year, years long contracts ended up meaning that their film was just kind of like lost in limbo for quite a while before the contract expired. So, so I'm glad I didn't do it, but, um, I wasn't, I wasn't pursuing distribution going into Summit because I was really like, I don't know anything yet and I don't, and this is such a small movie that ultimately I just want to make it and and get it to festivals. That was my desire, was to like watch it in a theater with people. And then of course, once I started doing that, I absolutely hated that (laughs) because then I I watched it so many times and, and like all I could see and hear were the flaws, you know, because I, it was such a learning, it was a film where I made so many mistakes and learned so much and ultimately I mean this is a this was literally a decade ago just a few weeks ago made a decade um since we wrapped production on it so so yeah it was it was my first time dipping my toe in that water though and I I learned a lot fair enough that's all very interesting yeah I for so you you say that you picked those comps because of like what inspired you and also what you think would like vibe with your audience and I did a similar thing Mm -hmm. with brains I didn't consciously know what I was doing was picking comps because like my MFA program was academically dubious so like all of the (laughs) stuff that I've learned about filmmaking in the film industry has come after the fact but regardless uh but I was doing it for audience reasons when I was like picking like keywords to drop um so I made brains at the time that like web series were still pretty big uh we we made brains like three years after the Lizzie Bennet Diaries premiered we were like within a couple of years of lizzie bennett diaries and obviously that was a big inspiration for us in like tone and style and i had like watched a lot of behind the scenes features from like the creators of that and so i was like really like familiar with their process and so i would tell people you know that like parody book like pride and prejudice and zombies were like the lizzie bennett diaries and zombies and that tended to go over well with specifically fans of um the web series genre which is like a big group of people that i was courting because like that was at one time a pretty powerful like audience demographic um and then I never really got anywhere with like mainstream zombie people. Occasionally people would discover us, but like our show wasn't about zombies. Like we cut versions of like trailers and teasers that like just focused on the zombie parts. And like we had a handful of like fun shots um, because like the one difference that we made in the production decisions was we weren't going to stay in a single location. Like we were going to take the camera and move around like I was familiar with doing in vlogging. Like I was never a standstill vlogger. I was always a move around the world vlogger. Um, So that allowed us to get like up close and personal with zombies but at the same time like it's not a zombie show (laughs) like there's a Uh zombie in the first episode but it's like a 30 second bit that's mostly a joke about youtubers so we definitely had a challenge 
convincing horror people to pay attention to us and then vice versa people who were there for like wholesome rom-com antics were not always thrilled with some of the like you know zombies stuff uh so we definitely <laughs> despite having like a really funny kind of like meta like lizzie Bene- Diaries and zombies pitch we did struggle a lot with like people who weren't sure what to do with us so i would be curious sure. anyone out there who's seen brains what would you explain as a comp for brains because fuck if i know <laughs> Yeah, you know, when we made Kelsey, uh, my web series, Kelsey Rauber and I, we made it in in summer of 2013. We ma- we shot S- Summit, my first feature, in January of 2013, and then we went into production for Kelsey, our web series, that summer. Um, and web series really were not, like, outside of Broad City, I feel like I didn't even know any web series. So I was kind of like, I, don't e- I wouldn't even know about comps here. And we self-funded, so it wasn't so much like crowdfunding. We didn't really have to worry about that. But on the on the back end, it was our our kind of like thing was it's it's like all of the sitcoms about groups of friends in New York City, except it reflects the diversity of New York City. And so, you know, I wanted to I would always bring up Living Single, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. And it was like came out a year before Friends. It was arguably what friends copied um but didn't reach nearly the the heights of friends because it was about black people in brooklyn as opposed to white people in manhattan but so like that was my go-to but then not many people knew about living single outside of the black community like not too many people watched that growing up who were our age especially and so friends was like an easier go-to and then also like how i met your mother um and i would say how i met your mother was also something that we talked about because of the style of the show like Kelsey on the series is always telling her friends a story and we're flashing back to it. And so that's not quite how How I Met Your Mother worked. It's, you know, it's, sure. <laughs> this was like she's telling a story to multiple friends at different points throughout the day about something that happened last week as opposed to like kids sure. two decades ago or whatever. But um, that was a comp. And then we kind of were like, but it's it has queer people and the main character is lesbian and there are people of color and like it's not just homogenous um but yeah there weren't any like there also weren't any lesbian web series and there also really weren't any lesbian sitcoms like queer of any kind representation and so a lot of our marketing was more about how representation is being pushed like it's a it's a formula you've seen before it's like a breakup rom-com meets a friends sitcom a group of friends sitcom set in new york city but it's also something you've never seen before because of this specific representation. That's actually a good point that we should call out uh, just really quickly because I think that's a really useful thing- piece of advice is that it's not just about this is what's similar because like you obviously have to show an aspect of uniqueness so that it's not like I'm just copying right. living single. I'm just copying friends. It's right. like it's friends but with queer people and people of color who don't make you want to shake them uh, or do but in different <laughs> ways. Like it's so it is it, it is important to understand like this is how I'm similar to these comps so that like you feel like you can trust me and my taste but here's the twist. It's like it's this but right. this. It's this meets this and like like that's a big part of the formula don't just list shows like explain how you're com- comparable but also how you're different so just wanted to call totally that really yeah no no that's great that's great um okay so we've talked a little bit about like vibe comps 
and like demographic comps. So now let's talk about budget comps because I know that's been a big <laughs> part of your life the past year or so. So yeah. uh, how do you go? So you, you, you talked about talking, uh, like asking Twitter, like what are comps, like, you know, what are films in this genre, in this budget range? But what else were you doing to try and find budgetary comps for a project? Yeah, so I would, sometimes I would start with films. So it was like, I looked at all of the horror festivals over the last couple of years because in my specific situation with my future Silent Night, which may have a new title, but I'm not going to say yet until that becomes like a real thing. Um, uh, so for now, it'll just continue to be that. The film formerly but, known as Silent Night. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, I needed comps from really no more than five years ago. So that limited me to things that were pretty very recent releases. Um, so I, I started with festivals and I looked at the genre and then tried to watch anything that I knew that was streaming or that I could get my hands on through knowing a filmmaker who maybe could send me a link or whatever. Uh, and so part of that was just looking at festival press releases and lineups, but also starting on Twitter, asking people for films. And sometimes then from there, I tried to just start with like what felt like it might be in the budget range based on the cast. Because if you see like a whole bunch of big names, there's just no way, right? Um, But if maybe there's like one name and then the main roles are kind of unknowns and probably that's like more realistic. And then from there, I would try and do some digging because generally, like we just said, people don't share their budgets. So some of them are popular enough that like a Google search will reveal it because sometimes because it became part of their market. Right. Um, and sometimes it's like, oh, they they already got distribution when they went into production. So revealing their budget became kind of a marketing strategy. But then you also have to kind of question that because it's like they probably are saying it's lower than it actually was because of X, Y, Z. So I also started to realize that the smaller budgets had a tendency to be shot in countries where the U.S. dollar goes a lot farther. So that's like a whole thing as well. but yeah, it, it became a, like a sort of investigation in a way. Like I had to sort of go down down these rabbit holes to try and find budgets for certain films that felt like the right fit. But it really mostly came from the filmmakers themselves through DMs and just private responses to, to tweets I was putting out or, or on Instagram stories. Did you like find producers and ask them if they would tell you their final budgets? yeah you know or just like a range or like a yes or no is it less than this um yeah because for the most part they weren't friends but having such a wide knowing so many filmmakers who work in horror and knowing so many festival directors who run horror festivals was really helpful to me because they were able to tell me if they if they knew for sure or if they suspected so it's like oh this film that screened here or that we just programmed because a lot of them were like, no one's seen it yet, but you could could reach out to this filmmaker. Um, And then what was interesting is like, I was trying to stick to this budget for so, for so long um, that I was given as a range. But then when I spoke to the producers I'm working with and I was like, I'm having a tough time finding things that are tonal matches. Also, it's really hard because with horror, especially my film is kind of like, 
social issue driven, even though that's not, it's the subtext. It's not like the mission of the film, but there's right. subtext that, that, that is saying something. And because it's horror, it's really hard to find things that, because at the end of the day, the, the genre is still predominantly dominated by white men. Like that's just fact. So it's hard to find things that feel like tonal matches and budget matches and aren't like really sexist or racist or whatever, you know? Um, So that was the challenge. And then they ended up telling me like not to worry too much about budget, but to try and find things that felt like the sort of perfect tonal match and maybe were saying something. And then it could be like a this meets that where the budget is the uh, the that. so that that opened up more more opportunity for me, but it's still tough. Like, I don't know. I think about Barbarian as a film that that came out last year that everyone was talking about, and I feel like it is a really good tonal comp for my film because there is humor to it, but it's also genuinely creepy and and genuinely gross. Like, it's there's some really gross stuff in there, and there's some things that kind of parallel visuals that happen in my film, but it's like. And it has it has a black woman lead, but it also is so obviously written by a white man where it's like not only would I feel like no one would do the things that she does in that movie, the choices that she makes, but especially not a black woman. And so and it also has some like weird some weird messaging about women and old women's bodies and and I don't know, like I don't want to spoil the movie, but there's just some stuff that I don't agree with message wise and. And so that's like a weird thing to be like, it's like this, even though I don't agree with all of these things, as far as like just an enjoyment of a ride, like the movie is sort of this ride that you go on that is fun, undeniably. Um, It works, but ignore all these things that don't pair well with my movie and my message. Um, So that like, that's a weird thing to... Yeah, I wonder how much like investors want that nuance versus if you just say barbarian they're like oh cool we're in even if they they don't (laughs) understand the nuances of why barbarian is problematic like i wonder that's got to be tough to be like yeah you like this movie yeah i'm doing definitely that also that's the thing i'm doing (laughs) like is it subversive to just like claim the things about barbarian that you like and the things about barbarian that they like without acknowledging that you don't like the problematic aspects or is that like selling out and not acknowledging like I like these two parts of Barbarian but none of these things like I I can't (laughs) even imagine how you would make that decision that's so interesting I mean I really don't know and that's I'm kind of leaving it in the hands of this sort of go-between that I'm working with because they know better what's going to hook those people and I think at the end of the day they care about I think they care about the potential for a return or a potential for success of it, like whatever they're marking as success. I, it's probably not a return because it's probably a tax write-off, you know, for them if it if it doesn't sure. make money, regardless. Um, but it's probably like getting seen, getting getting some level of prestige within the genre and the industry. But I think they, yeah, I think. I don't know. It's interesting because I do think that the, in my particular situation, the social issue aspects and the representational aspects of it are are part of the marketing, part of the draw, because it's like, oh, you get to like check a do-gooder box in addition to making mm-hmm. a fun movie. 
Um, but I don't think that they care about the nuances beyond like, oh, the leads are people of color, just like barbarian, you know, like they're, yeah, so exactly. I don't think that they care so much about. It might so be better about... to just like take a step back. Right. So, uh, you know, I've removed myself a little bit from it. I've just been watching things and then sending things that I think fit for XYZ reason. But it can also be hard because, for instance, I watched Werewolves Within which I think was a very good comp for the comedic side of Silent Night, though it's not as genuinely scary or as action-packed and and gruesome as Silent Night is. Um, and I sent that as a comp earlier on uh, when I was still doing revisions of the script, which technically I'm still doing, but I was in an earlier iteration of that. Hashtag and, uh, development. Yes, and... Um, one of the bigger producers I'm working with then kind of like assumed that I then wanted my movie to be more in the comedy realm. And she was mm-hmm. kind of like, she was kind of like, oh, is this the tone you're going for? I think that's a good, she, she, she saw why I said it was a good comp. And I, I did say in my, in my email, I was like, but it's more comedy than horror comedy. Um, but she, I think she then was kind of like, oh, then maybe we need to punch it up to be more like this. And I was like, no, because I think like if we're using that, then it needs to be meets something much genuinely more scary. <laughs> so that like mm-hmm. you see that my movie is the middle ground of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that like that can also be a thing where you're like using it because of the fact that it's an ensemble piece and it's a monster movie and it does have comedic elements and it all takes place in one night, which is all true for Werewolves Within, I'm pretty sure, um, as a comp for my movie, but not for these things. And so that that can be hard because you want to make sure that then the person that is receiving it is understanding where the things intersect and where they don't. And yeah, and it's just, it's like, it's, it's, I find it really difficult because like you, like we just said, you want to show that you're doing something different that doesn't already exist. But then I found that at least in feedback I'm getting, they kind of want me to be like, giving me the one perfect comp. And I'm like, if I could do that, then there would be no point in making my movie <laughs> because it would already yeah. exist, you know? The so, capitalism yeah. art debate. I mean, there's a reason why everything is a remake, everything is a sequel right now. And it's because no one wants to take right. risks because everyone's paranoid about money. And also the people who are in charge don't actually care about art. They care about selling tickets, which is, you would think, related but increasingly so it is not, which is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's why it's good though. Like if you're doing a, a pitch deck to like actually explain under the comps, like, you know, what are you taking from each comp? It sounds like a piece yeah. of advice that we can give is don't send out unchaperoned comps. Don't just send one, make sure you have a match set. Otherwise people might get the wrong idea. Um, so like having a couple of bullet yes. points or something sounds like it would be useful. Yeah. And be, and I would say be, concise because something that is always a thing for me I want to like over explain and then Mm -hmm. I think that turns into them just like not actually reading it all and so just being like from this this boom 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 (laughs) yeah Um, so yeah yeah I will say I had an easier I had had both an easier and a harder time with my two procedural scripts for coming up with comps so like dead on arrival my script that was going around a lot in um 2021 
Uh, I called it a slightly less procedural iZombie with a ghost instead of a zombie. So that was one of my like <laughs> comp statements. And then more recently, I finally watched the first season of Only Murders in the Building. Um, and so I wrote, uh, it's like Only Murders in the Building if Tim Kona was a ghost and Selena Gomez lived in his old apartment, <laughs> which is not exactly <laughs> what it is, but like tonally Only Murders in the Building yeah. and like setting wise was very similar. It's a not very rich person like investigating a murder in a very rich, very like established New York City apartment complex. So, you know, only murders and it's a comedy. So only murders in the building is definitely I understand why people wanted me to watch it now. I still think it's way too slow for being a show that doesn't have that many episodes and whose episodes are pretty short, but somehow they all feel Mm -hmm. like they're an hour and a half long. And I don't know (laughs) how to explain that. I don't know how they've done this. So I will eventually probably watch seasons two and three is there a third season there's a third one coming out got it okay i'm sure i'll probably watch this eventually because i'm like all right i i see why this is valuable to me as a writer um but i have some notes uh and then my um my other script crossover case files is very obviously a nancy drew homage because i was very annoyed by the cw nancy drew which is good as a show but not as a Nancy Drew adaptation, and that really pissed me off. <laughs> so I basically mm-hmm. split Nancy Drew into two characters, Drew and Georgie, and tried to do my kind of version of a Nancy Drew adaptation in like sensibility, if not a direct, you know, play by play mystery of the old clock retelling. Um, or I also called it a slightly lighter Veronica Mars. So like, mm. it's this but with this element removed or included kind of stuff. That was what I tried to, that was, those, those were the things that were in my mind as I was building pitch decks for those. And then, um, and now for uh, writing for prose, I, I came up with, this will only be useful for like two people who have actually read these authors. I don't even think Christina has read enough of these authors for this to be a valuable comp for her, but I was complimented by a, a, a former publishing exec for this comp statement. So I'm going to read it anyways because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. (laughs) Sure. Um, Okay. So the comp statement for my book is uh, the dual first-person POV is reminiscent of Kate Claiborne's structure with the tone and latent daddy issues of Emily Henry's Beach Read mixed with the filmmaking and fame backdrop of books like How to Fake It in Hollywood by Ava Wilder and Scandalized by I.B. Owens. So I've got like Hmm. a format comp combined with a tone and theme comp combined with a subject matter comp. That's good. That's really good. And it works out that all of those authors share, most of those authors share a single agent who I am querying. (laughs) So it's like, hey, I'm like (laughs) the authors you already work for uh, or work with, but also um, they are all like colleagues like these are all authors that like talk to each other so it there's Mm -hmm. i'm basically like look at this pre-existing community that already exists i could be the new member (laughs) that's cool who knows (laughs) uh so have we exhausted how to find examples because we talked about how to pick i feel like we've done a good job of covering like how to pick comps and we've done a decent job already talking about how to find but like let's say you've written something that like you didn't see like that you you it's not like you watch something and are like I want to do that but different like you just like had a cool idea how do you mm-hmm. reverse engineer a comp finding process what would you advise someone yeah so i i would ask the community 
your audience. Like if you've built an audience, let some people read it because they may have ideas for what it reminds them of, um, which actually is how we found comps for About a Donkey. That's my, that's my second feature that I made in 2017 with Kelsey Rauber. She wrote it, we co-produced it. She wrote it like years before she wrote it in 2011 or 2012, maybe even 2010. Um, but, and when I first read it, I remember telling her that it reminded me kind of of Little Miss Sunshine. Not quite, but sort of, like in the family, like quirky family sort of dynamics um, and how everyone was like somewhat pretending, but also, but really unhappy in various ways. And then there's like- A quirky yet deeply broken family. And it's a comedy. Yes, right. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I feel like it started with me where I gave her a comp because I was maybe the first person to read that script when she wrote the first draft. But then- when we were crowdfunding for it, we le- it was like, I think I've talked about this in various ways, I don't know. I know I definitely talked about this in um, on an episode of Creative Distribution 101 with Nora Poggi, who was a guest on our podcast because she had me on to talk about distributing about a donkey. Yes, friend of the pod. Um, so you can listen to that. So I'll try not to reiterate too much of that. But um, when we were crowdfunding, it was right after... Trump got elected so it really like made us lean into a lot of a lot of the more sort of subtler themes of the film and I think also made us lean into like the fluffiness because we were like everyone's so fucking like scared and sad right now like let's just make something fluffy but uh we leaned into our previous work a lot like Kelsey like it was totally going to be in that realm and it was going to have the queer representation of that series. We leaned into that for for crowdfunding because we were mostly marketing to an existing audience that we had already built. But then when we were in distribution, we were especially at festivals, we ran a whole bunch of Facebook ads. And we, this is what I talked about on Nora's podcast where it was sort of a little bit of a bait and switch where we were trying to get conservative people to come and watch this movie and find themselves watching a rom-com between two women that also was about a family but like the family thing was what we pushed in that marketing not the queerness so we didn't really talk about Kelsey or even have comps in terms of like queer women rom-coms we didn't have any of those in our marketing it was really we definitely used the um Little Miss Sunshine thing but someone also told us that it reminded them of Gilmore Girls the like quirky characters and small townness of it and so that became a big push and I found that on Facebook using Gilmore Girls as a tag got like a lot of traction for it for the trailer so I feel like that is something that you could do is let someone read it or watch it whatever stage it is if you don't really know I mean you definitely should not make a film before knowing some level of who your audience is and like who it's for and who would like it because of liking other things but let's say that you you don't know and you you didn't do that before that's not too late um start with people who you think could be your audience and ask them that that would be my advice a very long-winded way of saying that you could no i think that's great from your audience ask for help. It's so funny how so much <laughs> filmmaking advice uh, comes down to just like, I don't know, talk to people. God. <laughs> yeah. But no- nobody wants to hear that. I would also say um, 
if you like don't if you want to try to do it without talking to people which I don't recommend but if you wanted to start by not Mm -hmm. talking to people um I'm a list maker so I will sometimes make lists of like if somebody asked me for like five keywords about this project you know like what would those keywords be so like for dead and arrival it'd be like ghost mystery roommate drama Mm -hmm. Uh, rich people in New York, you know, like I, it would be a list like that. And then I would start to Google like shows about ghosts, like TV shows with ghosts in them, uh, TV show, like TV show mysteries that were female led. Like I would, I would go there um, and like take it from there and then just start watching stuff. You know, it's like, if you're not right. a existing fan of things in the genre you're trying to write, why are you trying to write in that genre? Um, and that, that's a, that's a, that's right. something for me to remember as well is sometimes I'll write something and people will be like, oh, these are like three things that you should definitely use as comps. And I'm like, I haven't seen any of those. Uh-oh, <laughs> I should probably watch them yeah. both to make sure that I'm not copying them and because I need to be an active participant in this community. Right. I feel like that's what we're doing right now with the script that we're writing because mm-hmm. it very much has elements from things that we've each written, but neither of us have ever written this specific. It's like mm-hmm. a dark satire with a mystery. It's like, a, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a murder mystery meets a dark satire about, about the, entertainment the film industry. industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so that's like, it's a very specific thing. So we've been watching a whole bunch of stuff, recommending to each other, trying to find elements that mm-hmm. we can pull from and make sure that we're not just repeating, but nothing quite matches it exactly. And so it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And we're doing a lot of watching of things to to find what we could say when we get to that stage. You know what I just realized a like sort of uh, relationship comp might be for our two main characters is... Um, the spy, I think it was called the spy who dumped me. That's obviously a very different. Oh like, yeah, because it's a buddy comedy. Like, yeah, but it's a buddy comedy yeah. between two women, one of whom is insane, <laughs> and the other whom is kind right. of insane and makes weird decisions. And I feel like that could be a useful comp for our our characters. And I God, I love that movie. That's one I of agree. my favorite movies. I agree. It would be a good. It would be a good comp. But then, yeah, I feel like it sets a totally different tone. And like, which is why we so need to make action. sure that. <laughs> right. We got to chaperone that comp. That's that's my new thing. Yes. You got to chaperone your comps. You got to make sure that they, they have a buddy system for your comps so that nobody gets... Because, like, yeah, I think, like, that meets, like, Ingrid Goes West is a more... is, is Like, Ingrid Goes West kind of grounds it in, like, oh, so it's, like, mm-hmm. fucked up. Yeah, uh-huh, for sure. <laughs> right, right. A fucked up buddy comedy. Right. About the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Or about breaking in, really. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Which, look. It's fitting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> our branding. It's all coming together. Yes. <laughs> we'll just um, use our podcast as a comp. <laughs> I mean, that that would it's definitely be a part our... of the pitch deck of like, we've made a yes. podcast for three years about like the sort of comedy of errors of trying to break into the entertainment industry and, and both unlearning it and finding reasons why we have to acknowledge that it's the only way to do it. And so we got mad and wrote a script about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then we can use like nice iTunes reviews as like quotes in our pitch deck. Yes, there you go. <laughs> We're the experts. And we on can ask it. We can we can write it and then we can share it with our listeners and ask them to recommend comps. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should be a Patreon subscriber. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do like a table reader, like a first ten pages reveal on our Patreon. Hmm. 
Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Is yep. all I have to say about that. Uh, do you have anything else on comps? I feel like that's all I have on comps. I think that's it. Yeah. Because yeah, I think we've talked about all of our projects and all of the comps you have for them. Uh, cool. Well, uh, drama alert. Drama alert. There was only one piece of screenwriting <laughs> Twitter drama since the last time we recorded. And it's like, I don't even, I even hesitate to call it real screenwriting Twitter drama because it's Kira Jones again and she's trying to start shit. <laughs> like, I don't know if when Kira tries to start shit, it counts. She did make a lot of people very angry and there was a lot of conversation about it being had. She even got Karina Aldi McKenzie to respond. So like... That was cool to me, personally. Roswell, mm-hmm. New Mexico gang show up. Um, but Kira basically was, I, I don't know, did you, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what the drama alert is? I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, basically, Kira posted something about how, like, her, her, basically from the frustration of people who are always like, I have a new sample, I have a new sample. And she's like, hot take, you only need one or two good samples if in your portfolio if they're actually good and like she said it in an obviously kind of shady (laughs) way because she's trying to start shit which i love yeah go off (laughs) but um but like she was obviously responding to this thing where like some people brag it's like the people who brag about being busy all the time are the same people who brag about having like 10 samples in their portfolio and it's like that's probably too many Mm -hmm. and like it's not volume it's quality and that's certainly yeah. true. And I think Kira also mentioned in a follow-up tweet that like she has sold both of the two scripts in her portfolio that she's been using to like get staff writer positions and get through um, script competitions and stuff. She's like, I only have two, but they're really good. So like maybe everyone chill out a little bit on just like developing new content if you can make the content you already have like really stand out. Like if it's a good representation of you and your talent, then that's it. Like, you know, and, and I don't think that she's saying that like never write anything new because sometimes like you reach the end of the line with a script and it's like, I've already submitted this to all the, the competitions and like, I haven't gotten anywhere. So like, I do need something new just to stay in the game. But like, if you have a really good script you know, don't feel the pressure to write eight more just to say that you've written eight more. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's mad because everyone's always mad. Um, And it was very funny to watch. And she was clearly having a great time. So I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> Shout out to friend yeah. of the pod, Kira Jones. Always starting shit. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? I, don't, I didn't see anything else. That was that was all I've seen. But I mean, again, like we started this segment right as like, the hub for screenwriting drama is dying like yeah. twitter uh like has gone like reduced nine percent like engagement on twitter has gone down nine percent in like the last two months which is major um like mm-hmm. it is elon musk just fired some uh, one of his engineers for pointing out that like no we're not shadow banning you at your own company elon uh nobody cares <laughs> Because, like, he introduced uh, views on tweets. I don't know if everybody is, like, paying attention to this, but, like, there's a new metric on Twitter, and it's views, and it's for, like, passive, like, engagement in on tweets that isn't like likes and reblogs uh re reblogs i've been on tumblr a lot recently guys uh likes and retweets <laughs> um and instead of showing how vibrant the twitter community is even when it's not clicking buttons which is like the whole point of a social media platform it's not to passively engage with but putting that aside uh instead of showing <laughs> that it's a vibrant ecosystem it's showing a like social media platform in like the last gasps of air 
and Elon's really mm-hmm. upset that he is not as popular as he thinks he should be or thinks he is um, and is throwing a big baby fit about it, which on the one hand, I like a lot because screw that guy. Uh, and on the other hand, is <laughs> devastating because I miss Twitter. So yeah, I'm I'm keeping an eye on things, but it seems like the source of drama for screenwriters is Twitter. And if, if Twitter is dying, then maybe the drama is dying. Yeah. Is there drama on Mastodon? <laughs> Let us know, everybody. I will reluctantly get another Mastodon account because I think that the server that I was on, the instance, the Federation ship, whatever the fuck it's called on Mastodon, the one that I was on, I think went down because I tried to log in the other day and it was like, we can't find this URL. And I was like, oh, it's gone. Oh, no. <laughs> I won't. I won't join it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> You say that now. Mm, you say that now. <laughs> yeah, I... You know. <laughs> what if your movie comes just, out and they're like, Mastodon is where it's at. Get federated. Hashtag Silent Night Federation. Something. I don't know. I don't thing, know all the terminology. Well, it would, have to be, it would have to be FKA Silent Night. But um, <laughs> I, I think, I don't know. It's just like, who am I just going to be marketing to? Then all the other filmmakers? Sure, of course, they're my audience. But like, I want to reach... I want to reach the annoying horror bros too, and like I don't to, think that you need they're... to join the like horror horror instances, the horror um, servers. Yeah, I guess. Might be called a server. But then it's just gonna be like a people complaining about you know woke wokeness. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't for sure. Like I think shit. that all of these people that are like we want a decentralized web. It's like no, you don't. Decentralized web is forums, and everyone hated those, or got it got so toxic that we all like <laughs> destroyed each other's psyche for ten years. Like we want mm-hmm. a centralized web, at least to a certain extent. But like the people who are in charge of centralized web have gone insane. So we're kind of like right. waiting for someone else to. And and that's something I came to. Let's just talk about social media right now because I I was having this conversation with somebody um, I met at my brother's proposal, uh, who does um, influencer marketing. She like works in influencer marketing. Yeah. She does uh, like influencers hire her to market for them. And I was like, so what's going on in social media right now? I was like, because people ask me for advice sometimes about marketing their work and I don't know what to tell them anymore. And she's like, honestly, it's really messed up. She's like, one thing I will tell you is that while TikTok looks like it's really popular, um, obviously it certainly depends on like what somebody is looking for out of their marketing. But she's like, if you're trying to just like get eyeballs, TikTok is valuable, but it's so fast that like it's Mm. really unsustainable for most people so it's generally unless like tiktok is your major like your main platform i don't actually recommend it as like an offshoot because it's already kind of um peaking in terms of people using it because like once everyone realized tiktok is popular everyone went to tiktok to like promote their various things and so now it's like you know garbage and chum (laughs) but she was like so Mm -hmm. honestly i'm mostly focusing on instagram right now because not only is instagram like for all of its problems a mostly stable platform but also uh making sales on instagram through like the um the like Instagram store and like or whatever it's called uh, marketplace maybe is what it's mm-hmm. called I don't know Instagram marketplace so. something something she was like that actually still has a viability so like people who are trying to sell 
you know, jewelry, merch, stuff like that, Instagram is continuing to be a like valuable place to do that. So she's like, honestly, at this point, I'm mostly focused on Instagram for people. I don't, we don't even, we don't recommend Twitter anymore. We we recommend like, if you already have a Twitter, good for you. Otherwise stay out of it. Very distressing. But she was like, yeah, honestly, Instagram (laughs) is where it's at currently. And that's, that's terrifying, but I will also say because Instagram now has the uh, option to um, directly link URLs, at least in stories, that yeah. it's becoming it's... a more viable place for me. Because before you couldn't put, it was always link in bio, but yeah, like that inherently yeah. requires an extra step. And that's so frustrating for people. Totally. But yeah. now you don't have to do that. It's definitely become way more viable for marketing specifically of anything really. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And like, like the mid to elder millennial that I am, I just watch TikToks through Instagram anyway. Just you know, like the sure. output from their TikToks. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I feel like that yeah, is kind TikTok of the has central the same hub. Issue. You can't link in individual TikToks. Right. You have to say like link in bio. Um, right, and that's that sucks. So that's that's my current like update. I, but I, I do think we're going to have an episode later this year, maybe once things have either settled down or fully combusted about social media and kind of go through what the options are right now, um, because mm-hmm. it's not looking great. I like if I was making a movie right now at like an indie movie, I don't know what I would do with it. <laughs> like, I thank God Me I have either. an email list, really... but like that's that's pretty limiting. Yeah. Well, it's limiting to build beyond that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's... So yeah, uh, do you guys have hope for us so much... in the social media realm? Tell us. <laughs> We'd love to hear some. Yes, please do. But with so much, I cut you off. Oh, uh, just noise. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> like, it's hard to get... It's hard to get even your email list. Like someone... It's hard enough to get people to click through these days because they get it, they're getting so much to their inbox in general. But then to like share with other people. Right, right, totally. But so then to also get them to share out like, oh, tell your friends about this thing is I think harder than ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of bleak. And so I'm definitely keeping an eye on the space because boy, howdy, I don't know what to do. That's why I'm just quietly writing novels right now. And working on this feature script that we wouldn't be able to self-produce anyways, because like, I don't know, it it's, it's, it's a lot. I want to be, you know, hopeful. I want to be on set. I want to be back in the heyday, but yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what the industry looks like right now in like a practical way. I just don't know, guys. Um, well, on that <laughs> depressing note, do you have any buds? <laughs> it's the bud time. It's the bud time. Do you, do you like these jingles that I'm coming up with that I definitely planned in advance? <laughs> yes. Um, I think they're really going to set the season apart. You should go first because I don't know what my bud is. <laughs> um, shit, I was hoping you would go first because I don't. <laughs> I didn't prepare a bud. Um, well, so it, in a in a f- stunning turn of events, Christina has started recommending me romance novels. Because I've got, oh, I've yes. gotten, I've, I've brain sicked her. I got her. I, I get Christina into all the trash, guys. I got her into Outlander. I got her into <laughs> Roswell. Now I'm getting her into romance novels, and so she's, she's <laughs> tossing them back. So there's a couple that Christina has recommended recently that I am very excited to read because I'm in the middle of one right now, and I'm like, no, you're right. This is, 
this is what I'm looking for in this moment. So uh, that's a bud. Mm-hmm. Is <laughs> Christina continuing to read and recommend me books? Um, and my other bud is my book. Yeah, I'm. I, we were Christina and I were talking about it right before we started recording. But like my first book that I am intending to send out to agents in the next probably two months. Ah. I'm really happy with I, I was in the middle of editing it the other day and I was reading through a section and I forgot that I was editing it because I was just like having a good time <laughs> and like that's so conceited to say about your own writing but like I love these characters and I have been so like deep in the trenches of romance novels recently and this is the exact book that I wanted to read and I'm so glad that I wrote it so yeah <laughs> I, my butt is that's my awesome. own book because I'm excited about it, but it's still not ready for Christina to read, so don't ask me again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, I'll stay on topic then, and I guess, yeah, when we recorded our end-of-year episode last year, I said I had only read two books in 2022, but then that, like, kicked off me wanting to really commit to reading, so I started in December, and I've read, I think at this point, 30 30 books since the start of December um and and uh nowhere near your number but considering I only read two that's not that far away from my number my number (laughs) uh uh, for 2023 is 59 so like that's not that far from you yeah so I started reading I started reading like horror and thriller and mixing in some romance recommendations from Brie, but now I feel like it's gone the other way where I'm mostly reading romance and then mixing in my usual genre stuff. So I, I don't know, I guess I'm just like looking forward to more reading because because uh, it's good escapism um, when things are slow mm-hmm. and also kind of depressing. But the other but it would also be that I have an I have a meeting in three weeks um, about my film, yeah. my first of the year, and hopefully, I'm really hoping that it'll be my last notes meeting. I said that last time, <laughs> but I feel like it's progress, even if it's not quite as much progress as I would like. It is still progress. So they're still interested. Yeah. They're still excited. This movie's getting made. I because I want to watch it. It has to get made because I have been hearing about this movie for like four years now. And I'm like, (laughs) it's offensive to me personally that it doesn't exist in a way that I can watch it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I feel the same. (laughs) (laughs) It's the movie I want to watch. Just like you wrote the book Mm -hmm. that you want to read. It's the movie that I want to watch. And it hasn't been done exactly the way that I've done this. So just let me make it already. (laughs) <laughs> come on universe right <laughs> all right well thanks everybody we'll uh thank you talk to you on the flip See side you next month thanks so much to kelsey rauber for our theme music kaylee brown for our podcast art and to all of you for listening links to learn more about them are in our episode description and thank you to our booby vips who are our ten dollar supporters on patreon patreon.com slash breaking out pod if you want to shout out at the end of every episode just like our great friends brandy nicole payne kelsey rauber and norman steinberg <laughs>